In our study, the Black Widow's book, Experiencing God, we're right here in this area here, adjustments. Right here, and technically what we're talking about today has to do with this particular principle that he's teaching us. He says, you must make major adjustments in your life to join God in what he is doing. You must make major adjustments in your life to join God in what he is doing. And there's two classic illustrations that are used in the book, and we're going to look at today. So open up your Bibles, first of all, in 1 Kings. All right? And we're going to be in chapter 19, and then we're going to flip over to Luke 18, all right? And so each of these stories are probably not stories that are foreign to you. You might be familiar with them. But we're going to look at them because each of these stories give an illustration to how two different people responded to God's call in their life. 1 Kings 19.19. 19. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, while he was plowing with twelve pairs of oxen before him, and he was, the, and he was with the twelve. And Elijah passed over to him and threw his mantle on him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and says, Please let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I'll follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And so he returned from following him and took the pair of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the implements of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. And then he arose and followed Elijah and ministered to them. All right? Now then flip over to Luke. Eighteen, eighteen. And a certain ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except for God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not commit murders. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your mother and father. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And the young man, you know the story, the young man walked away. Elisha heard the call from God to join him in his work, and he responded. He knew there would be no room for his old life, so he killed it, literally and figuratively. You know, in so many times when God calls us to something, he just calls us. His call is, is really, quite honestly, ambiguous. It's not very well defined. He, he says to the disciples, come on, make you fishers of men. So what's that about? I've never done that. Does it include hooks? Does it include nets? He says to Elisha, come, follow me. There's no job description at all. When we were going through the 120 job applications of people who wanted Steve's job, everyone wants to know, what am I going to do? Well, this is what God puts. This is the only thing he really lists on his job description. And it says this, other duties as a sign. You don't ever want to read that on job description. That means there's other things we're not telling you that we're going to ask you to do. Other duties as a sign. In other words, it's saying, there's other things that are come that we'll tell you about when it happens. That is basically the way that God seems to work, but he calls men and women to him, when he says, I've got a job for you, I'll let you know about it as we get there. He says, I'm going to take you to a land that I'll show you. Now, in the case of the rich young ruler, he heard the call, he understood the cost, 
and he decided it was too much. When you hear both of those stories, when you see the response of one, and you receive the response of the other, what stands out to you? Talk to me. What stands out to you in those two stories? Where one follows, and he, and he follows in such a way that he leaves no room for him to return. And the other one asks questions. And when he hears the cost, he steps away from it. So talk to me, what stands out to you in those two stories, in the contrast between the call of God and man's life? And think, so, why should this really matter to me that he wanted to the young ruler wanted have both? The young ruler wanted both. He wanted his wealth and he wanted his wealth and his eternal life. Elisha knew he couldn't have both. Alright, very good, great. What else? Who else? John? When Elisha sacrificed him, he gave it to the other feet. Just the opposite of the Lord who didn't want to give Really interesting, yeah. It's interesting. Uh, he said that Elisha, when he burned and he and he he was Burning his whole life, he gave away to those around him, fed them. Whereas the richer ruler was trying to hang on to everything. He wanted, he had all he wanted, he didn't want to lose it, and he wanted more. Yeah. Anyone else? Anyone else? Yeah, Kevin. Uh, Elijah measured the cost and was, was willing to accept it. He measured the cost. Elijah measured the cost and was willing to accept it. Very good. That's great. In one of my most favorite books that have been very influential for me um, is this one by M. Craig Barnes, When God Interrupts. I've talked about it before quite a while back. And um, he has this statement right there. We have to abandon all hope that we can hang on to any dream, any other relationship, any other location. For most of us, this is asking too much. Given the choice between selling everything to blindly follow Jesus or to return sadly to our own life, we would choose the latter nearly every time. That is why grace often comes in severe ways. And this book is talking about the way that God interrupts our life to continue to draw us along to follow Him. And then he says this, Christianity it's fundamentally an experience in losing the lives of our dreams in order to receive the lives that Christ died to give us. Now, I want you to really hear something really well because, I mean, there, I'm always looking for someone to say things that I'm trying to figure out how to say because I know that someone has said it sometime else, probably better than I and so this right here is a great illustration of something we've talked about a lot here at Crossing, and we talk about it a lot, especially in our study of John. And so, let's talk about the line, all right? Here in this room, if you're a guest with us and you haven't seen all the lines on the floor, there's a line in our carpet right here. This is half-court line, if you're playing basketball. And on this side of the line is, are those of people in our life, in our world, who are, don't know Christ yet. They're coming to know Him. They're learning about Him. I had a great discussion this week with someone who's doing that very thing. They're coming to know Christ. And along the way, we talked about this even two or three weeks ago, and along the way, there are people who are saying, this is all that the church is about. And then they encounter that truth about the, the church is all about money. 
And then they find out that the church is not all. And so they take a step closer to Christ. And all along the way, all the things that keep them from Christ are all these stereotypes, these caricatures, these things they've been told that are not true. And all along the way in the process, they're learning that these things are not true and that there's something else. And each time they learn something new about Christ, the truth about Christ, as opposed to the things they think they know about Him, they're getting one step closer to encountering Jesus. And so finally they've come to this place where there's a line, and this line is Christ himself. And they've come to this place where, at this moment, they're confronted with Jesus himself. Not only what stories about him, not what someone said about him, not what someone wrote about him, not what they even think about him, but this is Jesus. The truth. And they have to decide what they're going to do with him at that moment. At that moment. And what they come to grips with right there, then and there, is this. Is that in that moment, they found out that they cannot save themselves at all. In that moment, they found out that there's nothing they can do to assist in their salvation. They can't do anything. They can't come to church. They can't give. They can't pray the rosary. They can't go to confession. They can't come and work here. They can't crawl on their knees. They can't do anything at all that satisfies God because His holiness is so much far more than anything we can ever do. And so what this line right here represents is the fact that I have to embrace that I am totally helpless in saving myself. But He is totally able this line right here represents us embracing our helplessness spiritually. Our total weakness. Stepping over this line means I've acknowledged my weakness. I've acknowledged His strength. I've acknowledged His blood pays for all my sins. And I take His blood as my payment for my sin. Step over this line and then you're in new life. Now, what was dead inside of you has been brought to life. Now, over here, where there was no hope for the future, over here, on this side, last Saturday afternoon, was her brother, right here. And in that evening, he stepped over that line, so that at 1 a.m., last Saturday morning, last Sunday morning, he had hope that he had never realized he had. That's what this line Trusting in Christ gives you hope. But what I've said is, and what people have said, you mean, you mean I don't have to do anything? It's totally free? Absolutely, it's totally free. There's nothing you can do. It is free. It doesn't cost anything. You can't work. You can't do anything. It's totally free. It's free. It's free. It's free. It's free. It's free. Right here at this line. You step over. It just costs you everything. That is not cheap grace. That is not cheap grace. This is not easy believism. It costs everything on the side. And that's what Barnes says right there. We lose our lives when we step over on this side of the line because he gave up his life so that we may have his life. We can't have our own life. We can't have our own dreams. We can't have our own wishes and still get his. On this side of the line, for those of us who call ourselves Christians, for those of us who say we are disciples of Christ, if we say we follow Him, on this side of the line, it just costs us everything. It's not cheap. It's not easy. At all. At all. 
The rich young ruler understood that, and he chose that side of the line. So everything he wanted to eat, he eventually lost. Any thinking, reasonable person, quite honestly, would say then, what's the point? Why? What is the reward of following Christ? What is the reward of experiencing Him? Well, you can say that there's many. There really are. But today, I want to focus on three rewards of following God and adjusting our life to Him. And the first one is the character of Christ. God uses experiences to take us through and to develop the character of Christ in our lives. This week, I love YouTube. I love YouTube. You learn so much on YouTube. It's a great thing. Who needs high school, right? You can just go to YouTube. I should have had an amen, of course, of amen. Let's do that again, okay? Who needs high school? Y'all make terrible Baptists. shapes and brings that image to bear in our life. 
For his character to become evident in our lives, it can only happen one way. When those things happen, and we continue to follow him obediently going forward. It can't happen from a classroom. You do not get the image of Christ from a classroom. I went to seminary with a lot of guys, and they're not very imagey. As a matter of fact, it is a problem for us as a pastor, because we think that our goal is to know the Bible instead of knowing him. So it doesn't happen in the classroom. It doesn't happen from reading books. It can't happen from a small group or from a Sunday school class or from my teaching or anyone else's teaching. You can listen to every single podcast of Matt Chandler and Tim Keller and Chuck Swindoll and Charles Stanley and Andy Stanley and Phil Ivers and Greg Laurie and all those other celebrity speakers. You can listen to all their stuff and all you're going to do is be able to quote them. You won't be anything more like Jesus until you follow him in obedience. Until you allow all of those things from the outside to shape you into his character. Following him in obedience through all those circumstances is what shapes our character and molds us into his image. That's all. Listening to all those guys, reading all those books, sitting through all those classes, don't make you more like Jesus until you The second thing is a deeper faith in Christ. The rewards of following Christ is a deeper faith in Christ. We have covered this topic many times that, that faith is built up like a muscle. It builds um, on the last experience it had. It sees what God did in the best case scenarios. In the best case scenarios, it remembers what God did and applies it to this scenario. It applies it to this situation. And we can look through scripture we can look through scripture all the time and see that one time, one episode, one experience, Christ calls a man and that man responds obediently and he is faithful. He responds faithfully. But then just a chapter or two later, he's not doing that. And his faith doesn't seem to be apparent. And God deals with him. And so let me just say, this is the nice thing about God. He is so gracious and so kind and so long-suffering. That he doesn't command us to follow him faithfully, unmistakably, without error, every single day, all day long. He knows us, remember? He knows how we have to be reminded. He knows how often we forget. He knows how much we stumble. He knows how much we slip away. Prone and wander, Lord. Yeah, that's me. That's us. And so when he's calling us to faith and a deeper faith, he does not call us to perfect faith in this life. He knows our weaknesses and our failures. But he does call us to deeper faith all the time. So that in each and every scenario, he calls us into this place where we've never been before. He calls us into this place, the circumstance that we've never encountered before. And he says, Trust me in this. And what he would long for us is that we would say, I remember, I remember how faithful he was there. I can trust him this time. And then we trust him this time. In a new way that we've never done before. And we're drawn into deeper and deeper and deeper faithfulness. 
that he can do things that we've never imagined, that he provides in ways that we've never ever thought of, but it's only him who can do that. So the second reward today of following him is a deeper, more intimate faith, trust in him and his And then the third reward is that Christ is glorified. You know, we we serve as ambassadors. That's what 2 Corinthians 5 says. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were feeding through us. We serve as a spokesperson. And so a spokesperson is not one who speaks for themselves. And a spokesperson really isn't worried about their own reputation and what their audience thinks about them. They're representing the one who sent them. Not only are we called an ambassador, we're also called slaves. There's 14 times in the New Testament where we are referred to as slaves. In, in Colossians 4, 7, we're referred to as fellow slaves. In Ephesians 6, 6, we're referred to as the slaves of Christ. Slaves, as well as ambassadors, don't do their own thing. They do the orders of another. They represent their owner and his authority. And when all said and done, the one who gets the glory is the master. Not the slave, not the spokesperson. And there's a phrase that I've been, my attention has been drawn to a lot in the past year. That phrase is this, his name's sake. For the sake of his name. That, that word sake means in the interest of another. And so throughout scripture, many, 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 many times, there's this thing that says for his name's sake. So for instance, look at this in Psalm 25. It says, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Think about that. Think what he's saying. He says, I forgive, not because I want you to be forgiven, because it makes me look great and gives me glory for my name's sake. God gets glory because he pardoned Look at Psalm 31.3. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. What's he saying there? He's saying that because I'm so concerned about you, Jack, I'm going to lead you and guide you. He's saying, no, 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 no. For God's reputation, I will lead you and guide you. Because probably the way I'll take you and the way I'll get you there is going to draw some attention. Remember taking people over on dry land through rivers and lakes? Not many people do that. But he says, for my name's sake, I'll make a path where a path never existed before. In Psalm 109, 21, but you, O Lord, but you, O God, the Lord, deal kindly with me for your name's sake. For your reputation, because your loving kindness is good delivery. If you were to read through the Psalms, it's just everywhere, everywhere, he's talking about that God interacts with us and does things with us, not because of us, but because of him. Because of his reputation, because of his glory. Because the way that he chooses to do it would draw attention to him, and people will make much of him. And you can think of numerous places, I'm sure, in Scripture where he is doing just that. What did the, the fiery furnace, um, the lion's den, 
In so many instances, God's people stood firm and trusted in him and had faith in him. And at the end of the day, others looked on and said, that God is the real God. We should all pay attention to that God. Because our God's going to do that. For his name's sake, he saved them out of the line of sin. For his name's sake, he saved them out of the fire furnace. For his name's sake, he brought them out of the land of Ur. For his name's sake, he's done all these things. For his name's sake, you sit in this chair today, Portland. For his name's sake, for his reputation, for his purpose, for his plan. He's done it today. That's why we're here. Finally, there's also this passage as well in 2 Corinthians 4. <laughs> but we have this treasure in earthen vessels. You're familiar with it. We have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not ourselves. You catch that? That's, that's 2 Corinthians 4 7. We have this treasure that is God's power in this earthly vessel right here. So that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God, not ourselves. So he will be evident in this vessel. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, and perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body. For we who live are constantly being given over to death for Jesus's Say, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. We've talked many times about how our life is a stage for His glory. Psalms 19 says that the heavens proclaim the glories of God, but our life is that stage. Our His glory is proclaimed, and when He accomplishes eternal matters through the weakness and the brokenness of our lives, He could have done it any of a number of ways. I just really think evangelism would look a, a lot better, it would work a lot better if like angels did it. They're hard to argue with, kind of. And yet he uses us. Us. I think that if you're going to change the world, we're a bad model. We're not the choice I would make to change the world. But he says that in that brokenness that is you, in that messiness that is the local church, that is the very thing I will use to take my name around the world. And what he's doing when he does that, he's not saying much about us. He's saying an awful lot about him. I love the thing that in the Canvas series that I think either uh, Louis Giglio or Andy Stanley says, and he talks about the goodness of the king or the greatness of the king and his great mercy on his people. And he says, you know, when a king is that merciful, when a king is that gracious, when a king is that generous, who does it say more about? The people or the king himself? It says more about the king himself. He 
gets all the attention when he, when he is able to change kind of lives through using broken vessels such as us. Now, I want to close with this comment. Because it's really important to have an understanding of what expectations we should have. And so people go to different churches because they have expectations about that church. So some people go to churches because they expect the service to be an hour long. And some people go to churches because they expect the service to be two hours long. And they expect there to be a certain type of style of teaching or a certain type of style of worship or a certain, that they're going to dress in a certain way or that they're going to see themselves there. You know, whatever the case may be, we have expectations about everything. And the reason why so many people get upset with God is that they have an expectation of Him that is not what He ever said He was going to do. It's a wrong expectation. And so, as Matt Chandler says in one of his talks, he says, following God doesn't always end well. And in that particular clip that you can see on YouTube, it's the YouTube, there it is, YouTube again. On that particular clip, he talks about that the apostle, that, that John the John the Baptist was in prison because he obeyed God. Not only that, he ultimately finally lost his life for obeying God. If you go to Hebrews 11, starting in verse 33, let me just read to you this. These are all the people that God says are faithful. These are all the people he says that were ones that he thinks a lot about, that he esteems, that he says their faith was commendable. Let me read to you the list of those, what happened to them. And who by faith they conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, attained promises, shut the mouths of lions, pitched the, fire of fire, pitched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword from weakness, were made strong. He goes on and says, some became mighty in war. They put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead. And then he goes on and said, and others experienced mockings, scourges, chains, and imprisonments. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They, were, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and ill-treated. Men and women whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts, mountains, caves, and holes in the ground. That's the ones that he affirms. That was how it ended for them. In Matthew 7, Christ speaks there and he says this. He's speaking about when the flood came, you know, the man who built his house upon the rock and the one who didn't. And he says, therefore, whoever hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been found on the rock. This man's obedience did not rescue him from the storm. Did you notice that? His obedience didn't rescue him from the storm. His obedience helped him weather the storm. In Philippians 4, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, in prayer and supplication, make your request made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension with regard to hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Nowhere in that passage he says, make your request made known to God, your supplications and everything like that, and then he'll remove you from that circumstance. It's not in there. And yet that's how we read it. 
how we understand it too much. There's no promise to remove hardship. There's only a promise to give peace in the hardship. It's important to know what to expect of a walk with Christ. On this side of the line, it is not easy. It is not comfortable. But it is fulfilling. It has hope. But on that side of the line, definitely. On this side of the line, it is worth everything we own to give up so that we may have eternity. Jim Elliott's quote, which we've used just recently, he is no fool who gives that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Let me say it again. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain which he cannot lose. He lost his life in Ecuador. In Barnes' book, he makes this statement. We will probably not spend most of our life with family and friends and good health and good work, but they're not ours by right. They were not promised to us. We may have them, we may have to give them back to God at any moment. And someday, we will, have, we will give them back. The trick is to learn how to do that before they leave us. That allows us to spend the rest of our time enjoying them as a temporary gift they are. He goes on and he says that it's not who we know that saves us, but it's who we love who saves us. It's who loves us that saves us. Following Christ is so much of the time about what we get for it. In this life, on this side of the line, what we get for it is not a relief from the pressure of life. It is not the assurance, the assurance that we will live a happy life or our best life now or many other things that we're told. Christ never said that, although many people say he did. In this life, he gives us peace and hope for the next life. When everything he's promised us, more than we've ever imagined, becomes true. The rewards of following are having his character in our life. The rewards of following having a deeper, intimate faith and trust in The rewards of our following him are that he gets glory because he's able to use a broken, selfish life like mine for eternal purposes. And it's he that gives that glory. And it's loving him. It's being about him that makes this life in the midst of that hardship, in the midst of that suffering. And so in our life, what we want to do is we want to have Ebenezer's to remind us of times 
there was peace, where our trust was made deeper, when he got born. So that we remember that this life has purpose, has value, and it leads to another life. It leads to another life. That is greater value. It is the fulfillment of everything we wanted in this life. All that is still to come.